Well, today we're starting a new series on a short book, six chapters, New Testament called Galatians. There was an angry monk in the 1500s. If you've been around church, you may have heard of his name. His name is Martin Luther. And he felt this crushing burden to be right before God. I've got to obey perfectly. I've got to confess every sin I've ever committed. I've got to keep all the rules, all the regulations, both of the Bible and the rules that the church of his day had added to the Bible. In fact, he would drive the priests a little crazy because he would come day after day confessing every sin he could think of. Finally, the priest said, don't come back here until you have something real to confess. And then they sent him in his struggle. They sent him to go teach, to be a professor in a university. And the first book he taught was the book of Galatians. And as he taught through the book of Galatians, his eyes were opened to something he had never seen before. His eyes were open to the grace of God, and out of that experience, he experienced conversion. He was born again. He was set free from the shackles of legalism, of works-based righteousness, of having to perform, and set free by the gospel of grace. This would lead to what we call the Protestant Reformation. The book of Galatians has been called the Christian Declaration of Independence. We're free from sin. We're free from the, the shackles of, of legalistic practices and performance-based religion to live for God. This book's been called a tiny bomb, meaning whenever... A group of people spend time in this book. God does something. He sets people free. From often a misunderstanding of religious practices and what God is calling them to. And I suspect most of us here, we have a often skewed view of the relationship between God's grace and works. Some people look and go, my works will save me. I've got to do lots of works. Others will say, hey, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. When Scripture teaches a new creation that's alive has works that flow out of it. So we struggle with our relationship with those two, and that's what Galatians gets to. In the 1700s, a young man named William Holland was hearing Martin Luther's preface, just the introduction of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians being read by a man named Charles Wesley, and here's what he says. At a certain point, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. 
I almost thought our I almost thought I saw our Savior Jesus. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and began to pray. Then afterwards I went into the street and I could scarcely feel the ground I trod on. This man was converted, saved as the preface, the introduction of a commentary on this great book Galatians was read. William would then take this preface and he would go meet with every friend he had. He would go to all his small groups and he would read this. And it's at the reading of this that a man named John Wesley felt his heart strangely warm and became a Christian. He was converted. He had been doing ministry. John Wesley had actually served as a missionary. But it was all about works, performance, and he felt the freedom in Christ for the first time ever. And that would lead to thousands upon thousands coming to Christ through the ministry that God would do in and through him. This is a book God's used to counter legalism. It's focused on the centrality of grace. You're going to hear that word over and over again. Grace of God, the grace of God, because we often misunderstand this. Some of the themes of this book is the law, grace, works, the gospel, Christ, the Holy Spirit, our Lord's death, the resurrection, salvation, sanctification. So this is an important book for us. And today we're going to look at the first five verses. First five verses of Galatians. So if you would, let's stand as we read uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. If not, we'll have the words on the screen for you. Paul an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word says that all men are like grass, and all our glories like the flowers of the field, the grass withers and the flowers fade. But your word, O oh Lord, your word stands forever. May this be the word that's faithfully preached today. We recognize that unless you speak, nothing of any eternal significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today we just look at what's the greeting of the book. It's commonly called a salutation. For an English speaker, when we write somebody a letter, what's the first word we say? Dear. Now we think about that. That's an interesting way to greet somebody. Dear so-and-so. We don't speak that way, but when we write, we say dear, and we say who it's from, who it's to, and then we get into the body of the letter. Well, all of Paul's letters are like that as well. They all have what's called a salutation, an introduction. And many 
who walk through the book of Galatians often skip over the salutation. But I felt we'd be doing ourselves a disservice to move too fast through the introduction. Because this is a unique introduction that Paul gives. None of Paul's letters have an introduction quite like Galatians. This is Paul's longest introduction. It's also his most direct. In the book of Galatians, we see Paul have more anger, a righteous anger, than any other book he writes. Now, every one of Paul's letters, he's doing this. He's writing to a church or a pastor, and he's encouraging and correcting. Encouraging and correcting. Here in Galatians, his correction has a lot of fire, a lot of passion to it. Other books, when he's bringing correction, you don't see him quite so fiery, quite so angry. But here in Galatians, he brings a fire, a passion, a, a, an anger, we could say. Because what's going on in Galatia is the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ. The pure doctrine of the gospel is being changed, is being twisted, is being perverted. Now, Many people will say, you know, I don't, uh, I love the Lord, but I don't study theology. I'm not big into doctrine. That's not my thing. I don't have to study doctrine. Well, every one of us have a doctrine. All of us have a doctrine that we live out of. So whether you acknowledge it or not, your life is moved by what you believe. Your life declares what you believe. Some of us have a very healthy doctrine some of us have a doctrine that we really haven't processed. We really haven't thought too much about. We say, well, other people are far smarter than me and all that doctrine stuff. I just want to love people and love the Lord. Amen, you want to do that. But everything we are, everything that we do and how we live flows out of what we believe. If you look to World War II, you see a people group sought to be completely annihilated. And we look at that and we say that's evil, that's awful, that's heinous. But you know that came out of a doctrine. It came out of a belief where someone said, hey, some people are better than other people. And some people, uh, because they are not good for the world, it's better for them to be removed. It was a belief. It was a doctrine. So all the things we see in the world, the way that you see people interact, treat other people. It gets back to what do they believe? What is their doctrine? So I've got three points for us in this message. Three simple points. And the first one is this. Doctrine directs your life. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. Your doctrine will direct and guide your life. So it's important as Christians that we hold to a correct and accurate doctrine. What you do flows out of it. Now the first word we hear in this book is the name Paul. We hear Paul's name mentioned here. And in this introduction, 
I'm going to give you everything or nearly everything we'll study in the book. Paul usually does an introduction and then gets into the subject. Paul can't help himself here. He's so passionate, so fiery about what he's writing that he can't help but start to address it even in the introduction. So we're going to get a preview today of everything to come into this book. Now, I'm not going to go as in-depth today on some things because guess what? We've still got six more chapters. So we'll get that later. But today, the first word is Paul. Now, I'll give you a lot of who Paul is as we go throughout this book. Paul was a church-planting missionary. He could be called the first great missionary of the church. Paul did a missionary journey. His first missionary journey, he was sent from a church in Antioch, a glorious church that was multicultural, people from all over the world gathering to worship in Antioch, and they send Paul out on a missionary journey. You can see a map, it'll be up in a second, of Paul's missionary journey. He went on this first missionary journey around the years 48-49 B.C. Now, it may be hard to see, but Paul goes first to an island of Cyprus. A little bit of trivia. When did Paul's name change? Remember, he was called Saul, which is an Old Testament name after a king. But his name, at some point, gets changed to Paul. Now, most people would say his name gets changed at conversion or after conversion. And it certainly is after conversion. But you don't see Paul's name change until he goes to that island of Cyprus. And he goes to the leader of this city of Paphos. And this leader hears Paul preach and he converts. He believes, he becomes a Christian. And this leader's name means little. His name was Paulus. And what's short for Paulus is Paul. It's a Latin name. Paul's name was a Hebrew name, Saul. But it's not until Paul ministry launches and he sees the first person in his ministry that we have recorded, trust in the gospel. That Paul's name changes. I always find that interesting. His name changes when he goes out into this Latin Greek world. And he gets a Latin name, Paul. So we see where Paul goes here. He goes up into a region. Hear this. It's a region called Galatia. And he goes there, I think, for a region. A reason. Paul's home. We call him Paul of Tarsus. And Tarsus is just below Galatia. So the first place Paul goes on his missionary journey, he goes to his neighborhood. He goes to his home, to the towns around his home, and he goes to them declaring the gospel. And the group of people in this region are called the Galatians. They're also called the Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. Now the Gauls were from Europe, and they have been ran out of Europe, pushed down into this area, and the Gauls were a group of people that fought in the military for Rome. They were what we would call hired mercenaries. The way Rome worked at this time, Rome didn't often fight their own battles. 
Their people weren't in the military very often. They might be the commanders. Who was in the military of Rome were the people that they conquered and the people that they hired. The Roman military was filled with slaves and servants and hired mercenaries. And that's who the Gauls are. They're a group of people that are hired mercenaries. So they're fierce. They're more fighters than they are thinkers. So when you think of these people, they're like tough fighters. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1.14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. Listen to what he's saying. Uh, the Greeks, he's going to take the gospel to the Greeks. Who are the barbarians? That's the Gauls. He would have called them the barbarians. This book of Galatians is to these group of barbarian, fighting, tough people that he's writing to. He says, the wise and foolish. These Galatians, I think most would put them on the foolish side rather than the wise side. They were hired to go and fight. And this is the first missionary area. And as Paul goes through there, they trust the gospel. Paul plants many churches on his first missionary journey. He has great success. He sees people trusting in the Lord. He goes back in Acts chapter 14. This first missionary journey is Acts chapter 13 and 14. Acts chapter 14, he goes back in verse 27, gives a report to the church at Antioch, and they all celebrate. The journey was a success. But then word begins to come back. Something happened. There are those who follow Paul who come and tell them. They're called the Judaizers. We'll talk about them throughout the book. They come and they say, if you are going to trust Christ, you've got to keep the religious practices of the Jewish people. And there were many religious practices, in particular circumcision. So they're telling people, Christ is not enough. You've got to do more. You can't just believe Christ. No, you've got to be Jewish and follow the Jewish customs and follow the Jewish practices. You've got to do more than that. You've got to have some religious practices and orientations, things you do if you're truly going to be saved. Christ is not enough. They were saying this. Paul preaches a message of easy believism. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved. That's too easy. Do you know what? Our flesh doesn't like it. It's just too simple. Confess your sin, trust Jesus. He's enough. He's sufficient. He saves. Our flesh goes, wait a minute. Don't I get to do something? And then there's something I can do. Well, what we do is we respond to the gospel, but it doesn't save us. You, you can't do anything to save yourself. And that's what they were struggling with in this church. We see this book. This is Paul's first letter, the Galatians. It's not to one church, it's to a region of churches. His first earliest letter, written right around the year 50 AD, and it's addressing a heresy, a Christian heresy. And I, we're going to see Paul, he can handle and deal with people struggling with secondary 
fiduciary issues. How do we do baptism? How do we do communion? What are the gifts of the Spirit about? He can handle those and be kind about it. Oh, but you start changing the gospel. You start changing the good news of Jesus Christ and say it's something different. And Paul goes, we can't mess that up. It's what we call heresy. A heresy is a theological doctrine or system that rejects as false God and the Bible. That's what a heresy is. And oftentimes, these are new young Christians. New young Christians are more susceptible to error. So here's what Paul would do. He would start a church, and then he would grow that church and help that church by writing letters to make sure that they didn't do something strange or believe some weird doctrine. Think about it. A young believer is going to struggle. They need an older, wiser believer to say, no, that's not what the Bible really teaches. What that person's teaching over there, that's not true. Watch out for that. They need that help. Just like our children. I remember my children were little. When we go places, maybe some of you parents did this, don't go off by yourself. Watch out for a scary person that might want to take you. My kids will say, well, we, we know what a scary person looks like. They look like the villains in the superhero comics. They look like these bad guys. Is that true? The scary people that want to come and take a child and harm a child, they often look just like anybody else. We look at them and we go, they, they look like another person. And see, that's how things creep in. Oftentimes, a false belief creeps into the church looking like it's true. It doesn't look strange. It doesn't look odd. And it takes someone to discern and say, that's not true. That, that, that's not right. That's a false belief and we can't have that creeping in here. See, that's why... I'm a firm believer, and the Bible teaches this too, that the church has elders. We have elders at our church. And one of the primary things of our elders is to look and say, that teaching's not true. It can't be here. We're going to teach truth according to God's word. If I come up here and I teach something that's not in accordance with God's word, I pray, I hope our elders will bring correction to me. If I'm teaching something that's not true, saying there's some other authority than the Word of God, I don't need to be up here. And neither does anybody else. So Paul is addressing this. And Paul says, Paul, an apostle, they're attacking his apostleship. Now, on the word apostle, in Scripture, there's two types of apostle. Capital A apostle, little a apostle. We often get these confused. Capital A apostle, they have seen the risen Jesus. Not just in a vision, they've seen him. They've interacted with him. Small a apostle, that word is often used for someone who brings forth the word of God. Hey, they, they go into a place and they bring forth the word of God. We often get those confused and struggle with those. And, um, but Paul here, listen to what he says. He's an apostle not from men nor through man. What's he saying? I'm an apostle directly from Jesus Christ. 
I'm a capital A apostle. I'll tell you, those people aren't around anymore. Okay? Paul didn't see Jesus in a vision. He encountered him in the flesh on the road to Damascus. So Paul says, hey, my authority, because they're attacking the message of Paul and the messenger. They're saying, Paul, who's Paul? You don't need to listen to Paul. And Paul's writing back saying, no, my message comes not from man, not through man, but from Jesus Christ. That's where his message comes from. And he's lifting that up here. Speaking of this is who I am. Now in verse 2, he says, to all the brothers who are with me. I love this. Second point of our sermon today. Brothers bring out boldness. Paul, he's never alone in his ministry. You see him alone when he's about to die. He's in prison, in a dungeon-style prison. But throughout his ministry, Paul always has somebody with him, somebody with him. And here, the brothers that he's speaking of here, I believe it's uh, both those who traveled with him and the church in Antioch. So Paul's saying, hey, this isn't just me. I have other people with me. You know, sometimes it's hard to be really bold in our faith and stand on God's word when we look around and go, nobody else, is, nobody else believes this. Nobody around me believes what I believe. It's part of the joy of gathering as a church. We look around and go, hey, these brothers and sisters around you, we as a church believe the word of God is true and we hold to this together. We need to encourage each other in that and hold to that. So there's a boldness that comes from brothers and sisters in Christ. You need one another. Don't believe the lie that you don't need one another. You need each other. And don't believe this lie. I'm smart enough that I'll never fall into error. I, I won't be led astray. I'm so smart I've got this thing figured out. No, the enemy wants you right there, wants you isolated with you and you trying to figure things out on your own without brothers and sisters to say, hey, that's not what the Bible really teaches. We need one another. So Paul here, he says, all the brothers who are with him. Now, right after Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, in Acts 15, we see the Jerusalem Council. And they declare this in Acts 1511. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So he says, hey, we're going to be saved just like everybody else. That's a de declaration. Some aren't saved by works and others saved by grace. We're all saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to these churches in Galatia. I talked a little bit about that area. So we see uh, that's who he's writing to in verse 2. And in verse 3, we get the third point. Grace grows God-glorifying lives. Look at where Paul points to on down in verse 5. He says, he declares the gospel to this church. Grace and peace, those go hand in hand. If you don't understand grace, you'll never really taste peace in this life. The more you understand grace the more you experience peace. They go hand in hand. We'll, we'll, we'll see that throughout the book. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now he declares the truth of the gospel. 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we see here that grace, the more grace-saturated your life is, the more your life will glorify God. And that's each of our purpose in life. Our purpose in life is to bring glory to God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's what God's called us to. So the more we understand God's grace, the, the better we are able to do this. And he says that Jesus gave himself. It's a gift. This isn't something you earn. You can't do anything to work for it. Jesus has done all the work. He took your sins, went to the cross, rose from the dead. He took the death you deserved. And then he gives you a gift. And when you receive a gift, what do you do? Receive it. If somebody says, hey, here's a gift, but I want you to pay me for it. Is that a gift? Not anymore. If somebody says, here's a gift, but I want you to go do some work for it. It's not a gift anymore. When they say, here's a gift, you have one option or two options. I don't want that gift. I'm not going to open it. Or you say, thank you. I'll receive the gift. That's how salvation is. By God's grace, Jesus goes, I've paid the price. I've done all the work. Here's a gift. And by faith we go, by faith I'll receive the gift and trust in Christ. I have no works. I have nothing I can add. It's only by Christ that we receive the gift that he's given. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. It is sufficient. It's enough. Lord, I can't act accurately, adequately describe the glory and beauty of grace. So I pray that as we walk through this book of Galatians, you open our eyes to the beauty of what you've done for us through Christ. And now as we celebrate communion, may this be a reminder of your beautiful, glorious grace, which we did not deserve. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may